0: As long as humans exist, there will always be someone challenging themselves to do something that hasn't been done before. You may ask why. That person may answer, why not? Torbjorn Peterson endeavored to visit every country in the world, spending at least 24 hours in each. And to make it more challenging, he decided to do it without flying. He left his native Denmark in October of 2013 and returned home in July of 2023, nearly a decade later. To say there were challenges would be putting it mildly.
1: There wasn't much appreciation for what I was doing for the first many years that I was doing this, so I felt like going home. So it's been a struggle pushing forward, and
0: when the pandemic broke out nine countries before the finish line, there was good reason to give up. His story is truly Once Upon a Saga. I'm Steve Fisher, and this is Life Slices. Torbjorn Pedersen. Great name. Where are you located and who are you? I'm currently
1: located in Copenhagen in Denmark, and I am the first in history to reach every country in the world completely without flying.
0: I can't imagine you walking across the oceans.
1: That <laughs> it was, it was quite an effort, but I have big feet.
0: What gave you the idea to do this? What made you want to go traipse the world without stepping on an airplane?
1: It hadn't been done before. That, that's the short answer. It, uh, I, I felt I grew up in a world where everything had been done. And when I found out this hadn't been done, it was pretty hard to leave it. So you truly are an explorer? I'd say so. I've recently been exploring, if it was possible, to go to every country in the world completely without flying. and I'm happy to say it was. What did you
0: have to do to prepare for this journey
1: I had to prepare myself mentally to leave home for a number of years. I thought I'd be able to do it in, in four years or less. It ended up taking nearly a decade. I needed to secure a financial partner for the project. We needed to work out what the overall budget would be for the project. What's, what do you imagine you'd spend across the world as an average? The time management, would it? The values of the project, the logistics, the travel route... What kind of bureaucratic challenges you might be able to foresee? Especially, how would you get to distant island nations in the Pacific or cross between continents that are not connected by land? There were a number of considerations I had to go into. What was I going to pack? What was going on the website? What was going to be the
0: project name? I can't imagine packing. I have enough trouble packing for a weekend away. So, what, yeah, what do you, you p- and my wife? <laughs> <laughs> what do you pack for a journey like that?
1: you pack clothes. In, in my case, I wanted to be able to put on uh, clean underwear every day and I didn't want to do laundry every second day. So I packed like 10 pairs of underwear. You pack for warm weather and for cold weather as well. And for wet weather, I packed a pair of running shoes so that I'd be able to go jogging and stay fit. Packed Books, cables for all the electronics that you're bringing. I brought a laptop and camera and phone and stuff like that. Uh, some speakers. Packed a sleeping bag, a hammock, mosquito net that was fitted to the hammock. Some rope, a couple of knives, a compass.
0: <laughs> and away you go. How many bags did you have? How did you carry all of that?
1: Oh, well, that was all fitted into a duffel bag that could swing over my back. And then I had a small carry-on bag as well, which I would have between my legs when I was in a bus or a train.
0: It does help to know that you're a young guy. So it's not like you're an 80-year-old man trying to do this.
1: I might have caught up with you in (laughs) uh, in life experience over the past 10 years.
0: (laughs) I'm sure you did. You probably surpassed me. When you were talking about the finances, how did you finance this journey?
1: A premise for me was that I wasn't going to pay for it myself, that I wanted to... I thought the project was... Interesting enough that someone would come in and cover the budget and the budget was set at $20 a day. So it wasn't all that much. And we did find sponsorship through Ross Energy. So that was nice. That was good. And I left home with the budget covered. Unfortunately, after a couple of years of traveling, the financial side of things for Ross Energy were more difficult. And they had to look for places where they could save money. And one place where they could save was definitely a guy trying to reach every country without flying. So I lost my financial backing. They came on years later, though. But there was a gap where I spent my savings and took a loan and a second loan. And I asked my followers if they wanted to make some donations. And
0: yeah, so I I found my way through it. Did you have to pick up any odd jobs along the way? Not so
1: much, no. The the project within itself was plenty of work, um, just getting the logistics and bureaucracy. And I travel as a Goodwill ambassador of the Red Cross. So I was coordinating with the Red Cross globally and setting up meetings and taking time out to go and listen to the humanitarian work that was being carried out and learn about that. I was doing interviews. I was doing speaking engagements along the way. Some of those did pay, but in most cases, I did them for free. I wrote a few articles as I went along and, and earned a little bit on that as well. And I got stuck for two years during the pandemic, and I did get a job while I was stuck.
0: Oh, well, that's good. Do you plan to write a book on this adventure? Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm talking to different publishers uh, right now, and there seems to be good interest. And I think we'll be able to present really interesting stories and a great adventure in book form. We're also working on a documentary The documentary will be out next year, 2024, and I'll continue doing speaking engagements. I'm going on tour um, in early next year.
0: Have any celebrities come calling to make a movie of it?
1: No, not yet, but I'm saying Brad Pitt and no one less. You might get Tom Hanks. Yeah, I'd be proud. If Tom Hanks would do it, then, then, then Brad Pitt's out of the picture.
0: Take us back to 2013. What were your feelings before you began the journey?
1: I had some excitement about going out on a great adventure. I was thinking if you go on a two-week holiday and that's pretty good, then imagine what years would be like. And I thought I would meet a lot of interesting people and have great conversations, see things I've never seen before and Thoughts would enter my mind, things I've never thought about before and taste food and smells and just all the senses would be enriched and sort of chase this accomplishment. And much of that came true, but it came at a high price, though. What was the high price? It has been a lot of work and it has been mentally tolling. There's been risk now and again. I had cerebral malaria, which could have ended my life within a couple of days. I've been at gunpoint a few times, but one time where it was really serious and I thought it was the end of the line because they told me this was the end of the line. Three of the ships I traveled on board are confirmed to be at the bottom of the sea today. Some of these ships are like playing Russian roulette. Like, it's not a question about if they will sink. It's a question about when are they going to sink. Yeah, I've seen horrible things. I found five dead bodies on a beach in North Africa on the Mediterranean coast. These were probably refugees trying to make it across to Europe. But their raft or whatever they were on board collapsed and they drowned and were washed ashore. And that's imprinted on my mind even today. And then I'd say two years was more than enough. And and after two years, I was ready to go home. I didn't want to push anymore. There was a lot of uphill battles in terms of logistics and bureaucracy, especially getting visas and invitation letters. And there wasn't much appreciation for what I was doing for the first many years that I was doing this. So I felt like going home. So it's been a struggle pushing forward. And when the pandemic broke out nine countries before the finish line, there was good reason to give up.
0: But you didn't. You stuck it out. According to your webpage, you visited, what was it, 203 nations, but there aren't that many nations that exist in the world. So how to explain that?
1: That's up for debate. (laughs) (laughs) So the uh, the Olympics uh, usually have 206 nations competing against each other, so I'm three short.
0: (laughs) How does that work? I mean, what is the UN counting?
1: I think the UN would be seen as the bare minimum there's a process to become a United Nations member and there's a fee to be paid for. And a country like Tuvalu wanted to be UN long before they became UN, but they couldn't pay the, the entry fee. So that, it's like a country club. It's very much a country club. Then you have your your odd countries where you go, well, what about Kosovo? More than 100 United Nations countries recognize Kosovo as a country, and yet Kosovo is not... A part of that club. Then you have Greenland and Faroe Islands and you have Scotland and Northern Ireland and Wales. You have Taiwan, you have Western Sahara. You can point at different parts of the world and ask, is this a country? Is it not a country? And then you can ask yourself, what is a country? What makes up a country? Does a country need to have an army? No, there are plenty of countries that do not have their own military. Do they need to have their own currency? No, there are plenty of countries that are using other nations' currency. So what really makes up a country?
0: Which is the, the currency that you encountered the most? Euro. The euro.
1: Even, yeah, even more yeah. so
0: than the dollar.
1: Well, there are more countries using euro on a day-to-day basis than there are countries using the dollar but the dollar is a global currency so i i traveled i travel with euro and i travel with dollar in my pocket in case i can always get by if you have that and i've been to countries where they wouldn't accept dollars mm. yeah that was surprised as well
0: which countries didn't accept the dollar i'm making a list that was in- <laughs> yeah,
1: go and talk to them. Where was that? Oh, it was uh, Senegal, I think. It was in West Africa for sure. I think it was Senegal. And I was coming from Mauritania. And I crossed into Senegal. And I was speaking to immigration. And I needed to get a visa, which was probably 50 euro. Said I have US dollars. And they were like, no, thank you. I'm like, okay. <laughs> As I say, I have euro. And I say, oh, we'll take that.
0: I think there are parts of this country, the US, that don't accept the dollar either.
1: <laughs> yeah, they, they just want gold.
0: You said you vowed to spend at least 24 hours in each country. Which countries yeah. did you want to leave as quickly as possible and in which countries did you want to spend as much time as possible?
1: I was very happy to leave the Vatican after 24 <laughs> really? hours.
0: Really? What, what are you going to do for 24 hours in the
1: Vatican? Well, yeah, I mean, there's
0: only so, so much you can pray. <laughs> and if you're not a praying person, <laughs> forget it. <laughs> yeah,
1: and they make it hard for you in the Vatican as well. There, there are no hotels. You can't book a room, so there's no bed to sleep in. And they, there, is, there are no restaurants. You have to leave during night night time, so they close up at around 10 or 11 in the evening and you can come back at six or seven in the morning it's the only country i know of that if you're not a resident they kick you out during the night so i was happy to leave after 24 hours i had to hide somewhere of course for the duration of the night in order to stay inside
0: were you were you lurking inside the, 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 the <laughs> basilica or- there's There's an area
1: which is sort of border territory between Rome, Italy, and the Vatican. And the guards within the Vatican they only guard up to a fence. There's a fence, a very a fence you can step across, but but they are not concerned about what's on the other side of the fence. There's about six feet on the other side of the fence, and then a a short drop, like a step down, and then you're in Rome. So those six feet are the Vatican as well, but the guards are not concerned with that. And homeless people work that out so that the police inside Rome cannot bother them if they're within those six feet because it's the Vatican. The Vatican doesn't care about those six feet because it's on the other side of the fence. So I just slept in the same area as the homeless people.
0: Well, that's one way to make friends. Which countries presented the biggest challenges to you? both as far as safety and just in living style?
1: In terms of safety, I would probably say Yemen at the time when I went and South Sudan at the time when I went. And in both cases, I didn't have a contact person and I didn't have enough time to prepare. And the political situation in both countries were highly unstable when I went. So I was not doing much more than 24 hours and then out. There were a number of other countries as well, which were I, I didn't spend a lot of time, like Afghanistan, Syria, Somalia, Central African Republic would be one, Libya would be one as well. These are great countries, To to be honest. These are historical and culturally impressive countries. These are countries that have history that goes back thousands of years several of these countries have cave paintings that are ten thousand years old I mean these are really interesting countries and people are nice and food's good and there's the fauna and the flora is impressive and but they are politically unstable and several of these countries have armed conflict in certain parts of the these are large countries as well so it's not to say that there's armed conflict everywhere but there's no safety net. Like, that's another way to say it. You, you go there, if, if you fall for some reason, you hit the bottom. In, in, in safer countries, there's a safety net. These weren't necessarily the hard countries to get inside. In some cases, they were. But the hard countries would be Equatorial Guinea, because I'm not American. As American, you go visa-free. I think you're the only nation. Everyone else has to get a visa, and that they're hard to get. And then there was there was Saudi Arabia... At the time when I went to Saudi Arabia, they were within their 40-year stretch of not issuing tourist visas. So I think they started issuing tourist visas a year or two after I went. So bad timing on my part. I spent about seven months trying to go to Saudi Arabia before I succeeded. I spent about four months trying to enter Equatorial Guinea before I succeeded. And I spent about two years getting into Palau which otherwise would be one of the more open nations in the world. But we had a global pandemic, and that made it really hard.
0: Yeah, I'm sure the pandemic did not. Did you you happen to notice, were you able to tell during the pandemic if certain countries handled it better than other countries?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that was quite easy to see. The wealthy countries bought up all the vaccines, so they were doing a lot better than other countries. Wealthy countries generally also have people spread out a little bit more, and people have their own apartments and their own cars, and they're living more isolated than in certain other countries with uh, huge marketplaces or slum areas and so on. So yeah, the countries that were already financially better off in, in society, they did far better than the the less fortunate countries, you can say. And even to this day, I follow the Red Cross on social media, pretty much every country in the world, and I see which updates they come with. And there are a number of countries that are still waiting for vaccines, and maybe they don't have enough vaccines, and they're trying to convince the population to get vaccinated, and they're still fighting a virus that the rest of us sort of put behind us.
0: You say that, but there are large sections of the U.S. or large parts of the U.S. population that believe that vaccines are evil and do more damage than they help. Is that a kind of mindset that is carried over in other parts of the world?
1: Yeah, there are, there are always there. Some people think the planet is flat.
0: Some people are not willing
1: to listen to Wait a science. Wait, and- the, the planet's not flat? No, I, I, I'm the one. I'm the one person who can guarantee you. that. <laughs> I feel better. Uh, no, I, I don't want to ridicule people who are worried about vaccines or are worried about having something shot into their arm that they're not fully in control of, and or they don't know exactly what it is. But. The the same people, they push a cell phone towards their temple every day, and they don't quite know what that does. There are so many things that we're not skeptical about. I I do find that a well-proven, well-documented, and well-produced vaccine, (laughs) that should not be the one thing we should be skeptical about. Uh, There there are so many other things that you could could (laughs) jump on top of.
0: I'm of the ilk that every time they announce a new vaccine, I'm first in line. Give it to me! Give it to me!
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm over-vaccinated. I went and saw a doctor in, I think that was New Zealand, I was trying to get a vaccine that I, I, I thought I needed, and he went through my record and he got upset with me. He said I was pretty much over-vaccinated.
0: Well, then you're healthy, you can't get anything.
1: Yeah, yeah maybe, or maybe I won't get very old. I don't know, one or the other.
0: Did you have a chance to experience healthcare in different countries you said you went to a doctor in New Zealand was there anything about the world the world's healthcare in general is from country to country that impressed you or surprised you
1: no not that surprised me as such I think I've been positively surprised a few times where healthcare was free or there were there was no waiting and it was free (laughs) like hang on how how come things are so great here? The countries where you expect that healthcare might not be proficient, or that it probably isn't, like there are certain countries where you might not want to go to a government hospital, where you'd hope that you'd end up in a private clinic. That things things go hand in hand. There are some highly corrupt countries that are run into the ground, and where things are not going as well as they are in other parts of the world. And and it's, it's just a sad reality of the planet that we live on. And then other countries, it's super efficient. I, I was stuck in Hong Kong for two years during the pandemic. It's an unbelievably efficient country. When I was in Egypt, I needed to get a couple of boosters for some I like yellow fever or something like this. I went to a clinic and it was a tenth of the price of what it cost in Denmark. And it was produced in France. Hang on a second. Why am I paying so much for it in Denmark? I went to a clinic in Kenya. I collapsed at one point and we weren't sure what it was. And I went to a clinic and they saw me. I was super professional and they gave me a head to toes, sort of like tested everything and came back and told me I was overworked and it was stress and I should calm down a little bit. I had cerebral malaria in Ghana and I went to a clinic and they were super professional and and used to malaria. And it's a common thing and they, they're used to treating it and dealing with it. So I felt uh, if I came back home with malaria, they wouldn't know what to do. I, I'd probably get I don't know. I don't know what they would do in Denmark. We don't have malaria where I come from. So if you get a disease or a sickness, you're better off getting treated where where it's common. They they know what they're doing. So with the COVID vaccines in Hong Kong, they were free, obviously, and they're they're so good with cues at that People will line up and you you can't see the end of the queue. And you'll go like, it's never going to be my turn. I'll be standing here all day. I'll have to come back tomorrow. But they're so good with that stuff. They have seven and a half million people living on a pretty tiny space. And they worked it out long ago. So it just moves fast, really fast forward. And eventually I got my vaccine quite quickly, actually, and got a vaccine diploma or certificate. And then it was the second vaccine. And then it was the third vaccine. And then I left Hong Kong. Eventually, it had been a year since my last vaccine, and I was trying to get on board container ships. And it wasn't really an issue, but at the same time, people were questioning that my last shot was more than a year ago. So in Fiji, I went to a health clinic, I think government health clinic, and and talked to them. And within 10 minutes, they gave me my fourth booster, and it was free as well. Lots of good healthcare around the world.
0: Were you able to experience any entertainment from country to country? I've been to weddings. That was pretty good entertainment. (laughs) Did did you crash or did you just meet people who invited you? I met people who invited
1: me. (laughs) I went to a wedding in Sierra Leone during the Ebola epidemic. That was interesting and good fun, a story full of love and good food and dancing. And I was invited to a wedding in Sudan. That was a spectacle. There was a thousand people there. There was one of these, these TV cranes. With a video camera fitted on it, and that filmed everyone coming inside this massive tent. You came inside the tent, and there were flat screen TV, like flat screens, all the way around inside the tent, and you could see highlights from the wedding. There was constantly three hundred people on the dance floor. There was plenty of good food. There was it was traditional music for the first few hours, and then it switched to like modern pop and just people having a ball i think around 11 o'clock in the evening all the men had to leave and then it was just for the women that was the end of the wedding for the men then uh, you went out and had a like you don't you don't drink alcohol in sudan so you have tea or coffee and smoke water pipe and just chill and talk and congratulate everyone yeah it was brilliant it was
0: beautiful was even the groom there Uh, yeah yeah the groom got sent out as well That's foreboding for the marriage. (laughs) You can leave the room now. Thank you very much. (laughs) Yeah. Speaking of marriage, you weren't married when you started this trip, were you?
1: No, I was not. I I got engaged and married twice to the same woman uh, throughout all of this.
0: How does that work? Why did you get married twice? You wanted to make sure the first time stuck?
1: The first marriage was when I was stuck in Hong Kong and Hong Kong was very closed down. My fiance could not come and visit me in Hong Kong. We were separated for about a year and a half until we learned that in Utah, there's an agency where they wed people online. And if we were married, and also if I was a resident in Hong Kong, then I could apply for a special visa and then she would be able to come and quarantine at a hotel and then we could be together. So we got married online Sort up of through Zoom, something similar to Zoom. Yeah. Due to the time difference, she got married on December nineteenth and I got on the twentieth. And we got official paperwork out of Utah. Like some really like it looked like Christopher Columbus might have sailed around with it. It looked real good. We forwarded that to the authorities in Hong Kong with a lot of other paperwork. They love paperwork and stamps and in Hong Kong. It was quite a process, a lot of red tape, but eventually I got the visa for her. I also became a resident in Hong Kong and she came to see me. So I would imagine since we're married in Utah, that's probably valid across the USA, right? It has to be. If it's in Utah, it's got to be valid across I, I don't country, know have you ever right? been to Utah <laughs> I imagine right and and then given that it's it's valid in Hong Kong, I figure it might be valid in all of China as well so China and the u s accepts our marriage but Denmark looks at it and says you cannot get married online that's not that's not a real thing so we're not married in Denmark and we're not married in most countries around the world so that meant that at a later point. When I finally left Hong Kong and I was making my way through the rest of the Pacific, my wife came to see me in Vanuatu, which is a beautiful island nation in the Pacific. And we met a German woman who's been living there for a while, and she owned a resort with her husband, and she organized it. We had a proper wedding. But then she had to process the paperwork through the registry, through government. And unfortunately, the government was hacked. There was a ransomware attack. And all their data, their hard disk, everything was locked up for several months. And they're on island time, so it took them quite a bit of time to get out of that. And then a typhoon struck hard, and the country was busy rebuilding, and then a second typhoon. So it hasn't been processed in Vanuatu yet. What we know is we're married in Utah, in Hong Kong, and in Vanuatu. (laughs) (laughs)
0: depending on which time zone you're in, you're not sure if you're married or not.
1: Yeah, that's
0: right. For your taste, which countries had had your favorite cuisine? Mm, I would have to go with Italy, but it's so hard to choose just
1: one country. There's so much good food in the world. But the thing with Italy is it's a rather large country and it's a lot more than pizza and pasta, which people, they sort of latch on to Italy. That's a part of Italy as well, and I do like that. But they have amazing fish. They have great uh, meat. They've got veal and pork and this and that. They've got uh, uh, seashells. And there's so much good food across Italy that it's, it's a good bet.
0: Now that you've traveled the world and you've visited every country, is there anywhere else on Earth you'd like to visit that you haven't been yet?
1: Yeah, plenty of places. I'd like to go to Galapagos and see what that's about. I'd like to go to Easter Island. I'd love to go to Alaska and, and see Alaska. I'd love to go to Antarctica. I didn't have to go to Antarctica because there are no countries there. Most of the large countries, I saw a fraction. I saw a fraction of most countries in general. It becomes very clear when you go to Huge countries like Canada, the US, Brazil, Russia, China, Algeria, South Africa, Nigeria, and so on, Saudi Arabia. There are some massive countries, and they're not made for a journey to every country in the world without flying. Like you, You go to them a little bit too quickly.
0: You chose as your mantra, a stranger is a friend you've never met before. Can you say now you have a friend in every country in the world? I don't know if anyone is waiting for me in the Vatican. (laughs) (laughs) Back to the Vatican.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'd say most countries. You know, North Korea is a hard sale as well. I'm not sure that – like, I I didn't make any friends in North Korea. Like, you don't really engage with the population when you visit North Korea. I spent five days there, and you go – you see a lot of stuff, and you talk to the guides, and – you talk to some students at a select school of super students and that kind of stuff. It's, it's an interesting country. And North Korea is a lot more than what people give it credit for. It's it's not as crazy. and But they have a special framework for sure. But it, they still have beaches. They have mountains. They've got waterfalls. And people are just people. But I don't think I have any friends in <laughs> North Korea. I have to go back to to make some.
0: If you were told tomorrow that you couldn't live in Denmark anymore... Which country would you choose? I'd
1: choose Iceland.
0: Iceland? What is it about Iceland yeah. that you like so much?
1: There were no people in Iceland until roughly a thousand years ago, and the first to come and inhabit Iceland were Vikings. And I'm from Denmark, which is a, one of the Nordic countries, and we used to have Viking culture. So they. They sort of have it a little strong up there still today. They, they can follow their ancestry. It's a pretty big island, Iceland. It's about three times the size of my country. I come from a small country though, but it's, it's, it's large in that capacity. It's a small population. So you get village mentality, which I like. I tend to like village mentality that people are kinder and it's easier to strike up a conversation. It's a modern society, so you'd get the newest movies, the newest gadgets and technology and all that stuff immediately. It's a highly sustainable country. They've got geothermal energy and uh, they've got rivers and turbines that are powering pretty much all their electricity. There's plenty of adventure. They have volcanoes, and you can go skiing, and it's two different continental plates that are pulling away from each other, and you can go swimming in between, and they've got geysers, and yeah, it's an it's amazing place. But the number one thing for me about Iceland isn't all that amazing stuff that they have. It's a mentality. I feel that in Iceland, more than anywhere else I've been, people are willing to accept what's not ordinary. So most of us, we are put on the conveyor belt of life when we get born and we're told to clean up our room and help our mother and go to school and get good grades and get a job and meet someone and get married and have children and a job and pay your pension and then die quietly. Right. If you want to be a pop star or a top athlete or an author or anything that sort of steps out of line. Then you're told not to, you're told it's risky, you're told that most people who try do not succeed, and that you should get an education and a job and then have it as a hobby. And then if it works out as a hobby, then maybe you can build upon that and can go somewhere. It seems to me that in Iceland they're willing to say, "Ah, you want to be an author? Okay, I know a publisher. I'll I'll get you in touch with him or her, and, and then you can write a book. You can I have a guest room. You can stay at my place. You'll save some money while you write the book, or with sports and with music and with all uh, arts and there's a lot of leadway in in Iceland and a lot of
0: acceptance
1: for people being creative. So
0: my takeaway from our conversation is move to Iceland. Yeah, it's very expensive. Is it? It's very, very expensive, yeah. Now that this experience is finished, how can people learn more about your adventures?
1: People are more than welcome to come and find my social media. All of my social media is called Once Upon a Saga, with the same as the project name. I'm Thor Peterson, and people are welcome to come and, and look me up. I'm on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, on YouTube. There's a TikTok account where I don't dance. So people are more than welcome to come and find me.
0: And Thor, is there any question that you would like to answer that I haven't asked.
1: I spent a lot of time on the Red Cross throughout this project. I'm the one and only person to have visited the Red Cross in as many countries as I have. I I paid a visit in 199 countries globally. I raised funds for the Red Cross with a lot of help from my online followers. I donated my own blood and I encourage people to donate blood and make donations and donate your time as a volunteer. It's the world's largest humanitarian organization. I spent... Probably a year out of the past decade has been work that I did in promoting the, the the world's largest humanitarian organization, which has its roots in 1863, so it goes back to the olden days. And it's it's a good place to get involved and something to support.
0: So are you packing for another trip or are you, are you done traveling for a while?
1: No, I, my mother is from Finland. So I recently came back from visiting her in Finland. That was my first trip. And I'll soon be off to Portugal where I've been invited to come do a speaking engagement at a conference. And then the next trip after that. Will be France and Germany, Germany and France, where I've been invited for various reasons, and then I have Azerbaijan coming up in I think November, where I'm going on a small expedition.
0: I really feel like I'm not getting out enough. <laughs> yes, yeah, you should, you should. That's that's go out
1: and rub shoulders with other people, talk to them, l- listen, listen a lot, be polite. Remember, you're a guest, and learn as much as you can.
0: Thor, let me just say, this time, can I take it you're taking your wife with you? <laughs> no. No. My, my,
1: my wife went with me to see my mom in Finland, but everything else would be solo
0: travel on my part. You are a glutton for punishment. Or she is. I, I'm <laughs> not sure
1: who is. She's busy. She doesn't have
0: time <laughs> to come with me. Well, Thor, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it and enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much for having me on Life Slices. My thanks to Thor Peterson for telling his story on Life Slices. Thor wanted to leave a friend behind wherever he went. Most of us may never get the chance to travel to every country in the world, but we can still try to make friends wherever we go. And that might just make a world worth traveling. If you liked this program, please like Life Slices on social media and subscribe wherever you find fine podcasts. Life Slices is produced by Beatnik Ravens Productions, all rights reserved. Music courtesy of Fezlian Studios.